Uh, we're in 1 John. Uh, we're just a couple weeks in. A few weeks ago, we uh, started by starting at the beginning of the book. Uh, and there, I really wanted to paint a picture of you of the Apostle John. The Apostle John is in his 80s, perhaps even his 90s, as he writes this letter. Uh, you'll find as we go throughout the letter that it, he doesn't have much linear thought going on. Most of it is circular in nature. And, but that doesn't mean that doesn't make sense. It, it makes a lot of sense because he's using this art of repetition. He does it to emphasize what he's trying to drive home. And repetition is powerful, isn't it? I mean, it's powerful not just for communication, but it's just powerful in life. And placing yourselves in situations where you revisit seemingly basic concepts or techniques, it forces you to come to grips with each step and see how you might have taken things for granted. The process of revisiting helps you better understand the task at its hand. It builds confidence in you. But arguably, the most important thing that repetition does is that it engenders humility. See, but we, re, we usually refuse repetition because we're impatient. We want, we, we want results quickly, and when we don't get them, we quit. Or we get really bored with repetition, so we want something exciting. I mean, just think about it. I mean, think about when you first started driving, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to have a driver soon at my house, and I've heard people older than me talk about it, and they're like, oh, it just makes you a nervous wreck, and I'm a ways off, I mean, another year plus, and I'm like, oh gosh, because I remember what I was doing when I was 16. I think that's why we're so scared. We don't tell those stories to our teenage kids, but if I were to tell Eden all the dumb things I did in my car when I was 16, she'd be scared too. <laughs> but the more you drive, the more you know how to take turns at a certain speed, you know how hard to press on the gas pedal. And over time, driving becomes second nature. I mean, think about cooking. I mean, I cook eggs all the time. I don't burn them, ever. Because I've done it thousands and thousands of times. It's true for making cocktails. It's true for making a casserole. Repetition. Think about playing an instrument. You undertake the discipline of learning an instrument. It's really quite the task. Yet as you repeatedly practice and you learn the art of music, you submit to the instrument great beauty can be created. Or gardening. If you've ever gardened, the first year is usually a disaster. But you begin to get a feel for the weather and the seed and the soil and the water and the fertilizer. And the more you do it, the more it pays off at the harvest. You go shooting a basketball or swinging a golf club or swinging a baseball bat. It's this muscle memory that repetition creates that then provides positive results. And these dynamics of repetition, of submitting to the process, little Nick Saban there, and building assurance, they're all seen in our text today. See, in this passage, John repeats much of what he said in the previous section we looked at last week. He repeats it for emphasis. And so let's read it together. We'll start chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected by this 
we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word of the Lord. You pick up on his old man in this, didn't you? Uh, you see it right there at the very, very beginning. He calls the church my little children. He's not talking down to them. He's just speaking to them with great affection. And what the text wants us to understand is two things. And two things at the very same time. The first thing we see in verses 1 and 2. And that first thing is that we're loved. And the second thing that we're to see is that obedience is important. That's what we see in verses 3 to 6. And those are my two main points today. We are loved and obedience is important. Look at the fact that we're loved. As you see it right there in verse 2. You see it in Jesus' three titles. Look at them. What's the first one? It's advocate. The second one is the righteous. And then in verse 2, propitiation. See, advocate and righteous, they're legal terms. We'll start there. We'll get to propitiation. But, but the righteous and advocate, they're legal terms. So I want you to picture a courtroom. In a courtroom, there are four essential parties, right? You've got the judge. You've got the prosecutor. You've got the defendant and the defense attorney. And God is the judge in the picture. The prosecutor is Satan. And you're the defendant. And Jesus is your defense attorney. He's your advocate. And Jesus is the one who goes to the judge. He goes to his father and he pleads on your behalf. But think about what usually happens. Usually the, de the defense attorney is defending the defendant on the merits of the defendant's case. It's not what's going on here. The merit is on the part of the accused is entirely absent. And it's because we sinned against the holy God. So what is Jesus pleading? He's pleading himself. See, all the merit for the defendant is on the part of the defense attorney, the advocate. Jesus is pleading his merits as the righteous one. He's not asking for mercy, trying to persuade God to take it easy. I mean, that's not what God's doing. Instead, what Jesus is doing is that he's asking for justice. See, if, if God were to punish us for sins that Jesus has already forgiven, it would be unjust of the Father. And because of Jesus, we have this infallible case. When you see that you have an infallible case based on Jesus' merit, it's the only thing, it's the only thing that's really effective to deal with your guilt. See, this is what's happening right now. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, a lot of us, I think we understand forgiveness, that our debt has been paid in the past, and that's half the truth, but the other half of the truth has to do with the present. It has to do with Jesus being our advocate. So when fresh sin pops up in your life and your conscience condemns you, now you've got a way to deal with it, right? It's through your advocate. He's in heaven advocating on your behalf. Do you see how helpful that is? It answers the questions, what to do with a sensitive conscience? You don't have to plead your case. Jesus is pleading his, his case for you. Hallelujah. But then there's the question of knowing who is informing your conscience, right? Is it the Holy Spirit who does convict us? Or is it Satan who only condemns? Here's how you know the difference. 
If it's Satan, he's always pointing back at past sin. He's telling you that you're doomed and that you're not a Christian because of your sin. He's telling you that you don't have a chance. But what you can tell him is that what makes you a Christian is the forgiveness that's been offered to you in Christ. That the righteousness that's been given to you has been earned by Christ. That your debt has been, has been paid and your account has been filled up. But if it's the Holy Spirit, if it's the Holy Spirit who is sensitizing your conscience, who's bringing conviction, he's not going to point to the past. He's not going to pronounce doom on you. Instead, he's going to highlight your sin in order to give you a greater appreciation of his son. And he's showing you where you might have obedience out into the future. So Satan was appointed the past. But the Holy Spirit wants to point you into the future. He wants to show you a new way. But do you see what qualifies Jesus to serve as your advocate? It's in verse 2. It's that word that we don't use very often, if ever, propitiation. It's an odd word. But let me explain it. Let me explain it by thinking with me about four terms. Wrath, justice, holiness, and love. Wrath, justice, holiness, love. Four words. All four of these are characteristics of God. And he's all these at one time, but we usually pit them against one another, don't we? We say God is a God of love. He can't be a God of wrath. But that's just not the case. He's all of them at the same time. I mean, think about it. His holiness is what makes our sin an affront to his character. And his justice demands payment for our sin. His love causes him to love sinners. And because of his love, he sends Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sin, where God's wrath is poured out on Jesus, who bore our sin as our substitute. See, it's on the cross that you see all four of these things, holiness, justice, wrath, and love combined, all combined in this one act. And Jesus being the propitiation for our sin, it, it, it points backward to what Jesus has done, where Jesus being our advocate points to the present. And you see Jesus as both advocate and propitiation. You see the origins of God's love for you. It's not your loveliness. God's not been bribed to love you. Rather, the love that atones for our sins and advocates us, it was spontaneous. It was uncaused. See, the cross says that you're worthwhile. You might feel worthless. It could be for any variety of reasons, but the cross says you're worthwhile. So who are you going to believe, you or God? If you believe that God really loves you, you're going to put it on loop. And if you put it on loop, you're going to have great security. And when you put it on loop, you're learning the spiritual habit of talking to yourself. I know it sounds a little weird, talking to yourself. People are schizophrenic, talk to themselves, but that's not what I'm talking about here. There's a Welsh pastor in the 20th century. His name's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And in the preface, he writes this paragraph, which I find extremely helpful. He says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. 
Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, King David in Psalm 42, he says this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. End quote. See, learning this art of speaking to yourself, the truth of God's love and hearing the truth of God's love for you at church and through Christian friends, it'll be a great comfort to you. But John wants more for you than just a comforted heart. He also wants a transformed life. That's the other half of the message that we've got to put on loop. It's all throughout our text. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John wants change from these people. Look at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. Verse 5. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it's clear. This whole idea of obedience is important to John. And repeating this theme five times in six verses is his way of emphasizing things. I mean, we do it by putting exclamation points on his sentences. We do it by putting things in all caps. John's doing it through repetition, and he's flashing this neon sign that says, yes, God loves you. And the other half of the neon sign says, and he requires obedience. Now, some may read these commands, and they think, I don't always keep God's commands. I wish I could. I try, but I fail. So does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, that's not what John is saying in our text. We can't press John's statements too far. John is saying that obedience is possible, but perfection is not. What John's talking about is this habitual, consistent lifestyle of submitting to God's commands. He's also saying that obedience has two sides to it. One side is outward. It's the outward act. The other is inner. It's the inner attitude. And you put these things, these two things together, and that's when you have obedience. See, Jesus wants us to do things because we want to. I mean, sometimes we do things because we need to, like doing the dishes. Sometimes we do things because we have to, like paying our taxes. And that's the way we usually think about obedience to God. But biblical obedience is the outward act with the inner attitude of love. I mean, just think about how Jesus deals with People. Think about how he deals with the people who had the outward act, but they didn't have the inward attitude. What did he call them? He called them hypocrites. See, obedience is the fruit, not the root of our salvation. Another way to put it is that we obey because God loves us, not so that God will love us. If we obeyed so that God would love us, we would be obeying out of fear. But if we obey because God loves us, we're obeying out of love. 
See, when God's love reaches you, it brings about your salvation. It does that. Yes, absolutely. Hallelujah. But it also enables your obedience. But what John is trying to do in our passage is not just stress the importance of obedience. He's trying to tell you the role that obedience will play in your life. He's trying to say that it has a function. That if you receive God's love, you will obey him from the heart, which leads to great assurance in your life. See, he uses the word no four times in six verses. So we're to look at our current experience to test the presence of our faith. So assurance does not come by looking back at some past religious experience and saying, you know what, I met God when I was at camp as a kid. I walked an aisle at a revival. Not bad things, but that's not where we go to gain our salvation, according to the scriptures. We gain our assurance by looking at the present. Is our life marked by obedience now? If the answer is yes, we're given this gift, this gift of assurance. This gift of assurance is something that John's going to come back to time and time again in his letter. It's of vital importance to us because uh, not having assurance is like driving your car with the brakes on. You're just not real sure. See, God doesn't want you to do guesswork on whether or not you're a Christian or a true believer. So that's why he gives us these tests in 1 John. So brother and sister, I have to ask you a few questions. Do you desire to obey God? Do you see his great love for you? And do you want to return that love with grateful obedience? If you do, then God's done a work in you. But if you don't, if you have no interest in doing what God says, then that's a major red flag that you may have never received God's love in the first place. I mean, think about it. Think about it if an addict said, you know what, I'd like to be 83% sober. I don't have any intention of getting 100%. I'm going to be 83% sober. Is that person sober? No. Or what if a person said, I am 62% sober. Are they sober? No. They strive for 100% sobriety. It doesn't mean that they don't struggle. It doesn't mean that they're guaranteeing sobriety for the rest of their life. But what it does mean is that they want to be sober and they're hoping to be sober and God wants the same for our obedience. See, brother and sister, here's our process. Here's our repetition. We receive God's love for us in his son who served as a propitiation for our sin and who serves as our advocate in heaven now. We receive that love. Then we strive to live an obedient lifestyle by the power that he provides. And when we fail, we do it all over again. We receive his love afresh, and we strive for obedience once again. And here's what happens. When you, when you emphasize both these things, God's love for you and the need for obedience, it keeps you from falling off one side of the fence. See, on one side of the fence, and you treat your sin too leniently, and you say, I'm forgiven. Obedience is of little consequence to me then what it does is it encourages sin by stressing God's love for you. But you can fall off on the other side and you treat your sin too severely. 
When you say, I must obey or I'm going to be disqualified from God's favor. But when you have this view, it takes the capacity, the ongoing capacity for sin seriously. But it also shows you God's love for you, his grace and his forgiveness. See, here in just a moment, we come to this meal. We take this meal every week. And sometimes at this meal, you might come under great conviction. Uh, this might be the moment where the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and says, uh, you know what, there's, there's room for a, a future obedience for you. But this also might be the time, just because we're in church doesn't mean that Satan can't get a hold of you in this room. <laughs> this might be the time where he says, you know what, you know what you did on Tuesday? There's no way. You should be taking this meal. There's no way you're a Christian. But that's why we take this meal every week. <laughs> because this meal isn't about our performance. This is about Christ's performance on our behalf. That his case is his merits and not our own. Let's pray. Father, would you warm our hearts at this gospel fire here at this meal. And assure us of your love for us. And Lord, I pray that it would empower our obedience going forward. We pray these things in your name. Amen.